joined by Tom Cowan. How are you doing, Tom? I'm very well. I'm, I'm saying I'm very well, uh, Ross. I've actually, as you can see, got a big, huge glass of red wine here because I think this meeting was never scheduled to happen. It was as if the gods were inspiring against us because um, I was out this afternoon, as you can see, for a wee haircut and a oh. wee shave. Uh, Turkish, okay? As I say, my, my dream is to open a Scottish barbers in Turkey. I want to do that. I think there's a gap in the market, all right? Well, when I was earlier getting my hair cut uh, and we shaved the day, which I love getting done, I was sitting in the chair, and I'll tell you what, if I thought the barber could also do a wee bit of dentistry, I was going to let him have a look at a tooth in the back of my mouth. I've got absolute chronic toothache. I don't know what's happened. So since uh, I was uh, arrived home and since I was uh, getting myself teed up for yourself, um, I've had about 40 painkillers and I'm now on the red wine just to try and numb the pain. So you might actually win some sort of podcast award here for catching me off my guard because <laughs> I could be a wee bit tipsy or a wee bit high on the drugs. I might say something that could make your name. I just keep battering in the wine then, Tom. That'll be fine by me. <laughs> so I just want to start off by asking you what your early football memories would be. My early football memories? My early football memories were... Uh, the fact that where I grew up in Motherwell, and uh, we actually only recently, my mum passed away last year, and only actually this week, uh, sold the old family home in Motherwell. And if you could do us a favour, Ross, and no tell the council, uh, that would be terrific, mate, all right? But where I grew up, loads and loads of wee pals, and uh, we were all around about the same age, we were all fit by daft, we always went out and played football, we went out and played hunts. Out and played kick the can, we went out and played Kirby. You were never in the house. And then we all got to an age, maybe we were about, I don't know, five, six, seven, or eight, where where we lived in Muddle, you could look up to the top end of the town. And if there was a midweek game on, and let's say a Wednesday night at Fur Park, you would see the glow of the floodlights, you know. And this kind of really drew us in. And we thought, what's going on up there, you know? And uh, so we started going up wee posses there, going up to uh, Fur Park when it was a midweek game on. And it was very, very easy to get a lift over, of course, back in the day. It was absolutely brilliant. And I'd, I'd just go to the bunk. And uh, my dad was a Motherwell fan. His dad was a Motherwell fan. And as a firm believer that you should support your local club, um, that was me. I was hooked on Motherwell. So what players would it have been playing in Motherwell at that time when you oh, started Oh, well, that was for the very, very end of uh, legends like Willie Pettigrew. Um, my first kind of hero, because I saw him playing quite regularly for a couple of seasons before he retired, was Joe Walk, the late, great Joe Walk. And then in the year that, still actually my favourite year as a Motherwell fan, I must be honest, because, I mean, I get slaughtered, Ross for going on the radio every single week and mentioning May the 18th, 1991. Now, I make no apology for it because it was the only time, and perhaps it will be the only time, uh, I, 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 I saw my club lifting a major trophy. But when we lifted the first division, the old first division championship in 1981-82, um, Davy Hay was our manager, and we had players in the team like Hugh Sproat, Johnny Gagan, Brian McLaughlin, Willie Irvin, Brian Cleland, uh, Bruce Cleland, sorry, um, Joe Carson, Steve McClelland. I could probably get through them all, but we ran away with the first division that year. 
we, we, we were the first in uh, Britain uh, to win our respective league. We clinched it. It was late March, I think it was. We had a, a, a record goal-scoring performance. I think we might have scored some like 104 goals um, that season. And it was brilliant. You were going week by week. Uh, home games, away games, which I went to then with my dad. Um, I'd have been about 12. Um, and you were scoring five, six, seven goals every week. It was absolutely brilliant. So it was a great time for me, Ross, as you can imagine, when you were starting really getting into the football to get totally hooked because your team was winning every week and because we were scoring goals every week. It was great. Do you think that helped you fall in love with the fact that you were watching a successful team as well? Undoubtedly. You know what it's like, Ross? There's an old analogy. I like a wee gamble, be it the horses, the dogs, or the casino or whatever. And there's an old kind of um, almost kind of um, perceived wisdom that says that the worst thing you can do if you'd ever to have a first go at a puggy or if you'd have a first go at a bet in the greyhounds or if you'd have a first go at a wager on the horses is to win because then you start thinking it's easy and you think, oh, I could win every time and before you know it, you're hooked. So you could you could argue that I could have been easily spoiled by that Motherwell team back then and thinking this is what it's always going to be like. We're going to scud teams 5-0, 6-0, You know, and as I would have learned in later life, even the year after that magnificent team uh, won the first division and got promoted, uh, our two first home games um, in the new season in the Premier League, first one was against Rangers. We went 2-0 down, but then magnificently we came back to snatch a 2-2 draw, and it was incredible. We thought, here we go, here we go. And our second home game back in that campaign, and check it out on YouTube if you want, we played Celtic. And what a team Celtic had. It was all kind of like Charlie Nicholas, Roy Aitken, Tommy Burns, Murdo McLeod. It was all household names. And we got absolutely pumped 7-0. So there was, there was that thought, as I say, in my mind, that we were going to be the guys scoring 7 every week. But clearly it was a different kettle of fish when you are up into the top flight. But Great time to get uh, into football. It was great, great days. Definitely. Uh, so on to the, on to the work career now, when, when did you start realising that you were enjoying writing the comedy sketches and when did you start kind of realising that you were quite good at it? Um, well, I would, uh, sixth year at the high school, I'd, I'd kind of got my... I'd, I'd done my exams, more grades and my hires. I'd done like kids nowadays who seem like growing men and growing lassies, you see them out and about, and it's incredible. They're, you know, I, I was like a wee boy when I was in sixth year, you know, so I didn't want to leave the school. Stayed on to sixth year, and then um, my late great English teacher, Mr Tom King, um, encouraged us to do a bit of writing. Um, I did sixth year English studies, and um, he, he kind of took me under his wing a wee bit, and I was writing kind of wee jokes, wee sketches, wee quickies. Um, and he sent some of them into a couple of shows on Radio 4 and Radio 2. And surprise, surprise, they used some of them. And uh, that was an absolutely terrific buzz. So it gave me a real interest in that. Um, but this time, uh, when I was getting right into it, I'd already gone to Napier College. And it was still a college then, not a university, which shows my age, Ross. Um, <laughs> today, journalism. But I must be brutally honest, when we, to use the football uh, terminology, I ended up leaving 
the college by mutual consent. Because uh, basically, I was too interested in writing for telly and radio shows, and the the college was thinking, you know, you're, you're not paying a blind bit of notice to your studies. So there was a part of the ways there, and um, and that was it. So I, I, I kept kind of writing and writing and writing, and I get involved with quite a lot of good things at the BBC. And in fact, this comes back around to you, Ross, in a, in a very, very strange way, because um, there was a great guy, uh, Philip Duffer, who's now a, a good, good pal of mine. He was the guy who created Only an Excuse and wrote all the brilliant scripts for Jonathan Watson. He was also at the heart of programmes like Naked Video, Naked Radio, Scotch and Rye, a lot of things that older people tuning into this will fondly remember. And Phil took me under his wing a wee bit, and um, I was forever grateful for that, and he gave me a lot of writing opportunities. And that's why, hands up, when folk like yourself, Ross, ask me, hi, Tom, the DM me or whatever, can you take part in a wee podcast I'm doing? I don't know how many knockbacks guys like you get, but I, I never, I, I would never, ever do that because I got a lot of great encouragement for people when I was young, and I always feel that you should kind of like give a wee bit back, so... That's why, even though it's taken us a lot of time, Ross, uh, with one thing and another, and that the other week there when Facebook and Instagram and everything kind of shut down. Um, when I remember the 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 kind of encouragement that I got for guys like my old English teacher, guys like Philip Duffer, who's still my pal, then I always think it's important to encourage boys like yourself. It's brilliant to hear someone like yourself saying that. And- Obviously, remembering the hell that you got when you were just coming up, you know what I mean? So wait a minute, there's no such thing as a free compliment. Who, who, who's knocked you back? Who have you ever, who have you ever asked for a wee interview and they've not even replied? Oh, name and shame. There's plenty. I'll no name and shame. Though. That's a bit harsh, but nah, you should see my DMs. Are, uh, there's a lot of knockbacks or just uh, unreads. But I mean, what's the hard? It takes, you know, what, half an hour or whatever, and that's that. I'm sitting in main house. I'm sitting down in my wee office. We glass of wine as well. Exactly, I for the tooth. So when did it come about that you got the opportunity to join off the ball? Off? Well, a couple of years into doing a wee bit of writing and stuff, through that I managed to get a a column with Evening Times um, and I'll always have a great fondness for the Evening Times, the Glasgow Evening Paper. Um, I started a wee script column with them on a Monday night, um, February 1991. And what was great about that, Ross, was that, I mean, oh, I was very, very nervous. And I was thinking, God, I've got a column to write every week. You know, the old theory about the terrified, the blank sheet of paper and all that. And, and it was actually paper. Mm-hmm. Back then, I would have written all my columns out longhand. And then with being an evening paper, I phoned a copy taker at seven o'clock Monday morning and dictated my stuff down the line and he or she tap, 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 tap. And then it went into the paper for the evening times going out in the streets at about half past 11, 12 o'clock, you know. So when I was doing that, um, you know, you, you, you were panic-stricken about having to fill a column, etc. But I did say there I'd started uh, February 1991 and, of course at the risk of repeating myself, that was the magnificent year in which Motherwell won the Cup. So that was a great time for me to start a column because as a Motherwell fan, 
had plenty to write about, starting with a you know a third round victory up at Aberdeen against a brilliant Aberdeen team, and then all the way through uh, beating teams like Falkirk, Morton, of course Celtic in the semi final, and then Dundee United in May. So I always had plenty to write about. So I'm I'm forever thankful uh, to Motherwell, my team, for that because it, it, it helped kickstart my career. And then after uh, that was '91, so after maybe three years of doing that and keeping writing for things like Only an Excuse and Scotch and Rye, Naked Video, Naked Radio, stuff like that, through Phil Duffer, um, I got a call from a wee guy called Alan Depolette, who was starting a new show on the BBC, a kind of irreverent fanzine show, and he'd read my stuff in the Evening Times, and he was wanting me to get involved. Um, so that was 1994. So next thing I knew, after the 94 World Cup, the 94 World Cup synonymous, I know you're only a young man, Ross, but synonymous with like Maradona and running to the, the corner flag and his eyeballs out like that and everything. You know, it was that great World Cup. <laughs> after that World Cup, um, we started doing Off the Ball on BBC Radio Scotland 1994. And it was totally different. It was presented by Greg Hemphill, who you may have heard of. Right. And sitting next to me on the other side of the desk was Sanjeev Kohli, who you might have heard of, mm-hmm. and uh, and my good self, you know. And uh, where are they now? Where are they now, Ross? I need to What's ask that? you that. You know what I mean? Uh, <laughs> but no, it was, it was great. And it was a wee bit different. It was a wee bit subversive. It was a wee bit kind of dangerous. Uh, certainly in an era when you could get away with a lot more than you certainly could now. But what happened then in terms of the timeline of off the ball is that Greg, after the first year, Greg wasn't really into his football. He's Canadian, for goodness sake, right? Sanjeev, as much as he had a passing interest in football, would be the first to admit that he wasn't really right in there. So I was the only guy in the show who was like a season ticket holder at Motherwolf. So they decided, the BBC, that they had the, you know, a wee wee bit of an idea there for a show. They had something definitely they could improve. And 1995, for the start of that season, August 1995, uh, they brought in Stuart Cosgrove, who by that time had written Hamden Babylon, which is an absolutely brilliant book. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about, you need to go there and find it in a box farm or a bargain books or something. Great book about the history of Scottish football. I'm just in the wee slot, hang on. <laughs> and uh, they basically chucked me and Stuart together. Stuart had been doing a lot of media stuff, kind of the late show, app shows on BBC Two late at night. He'd done a lot of uh, Radio 5 live stuff and he'd incorporated a wee bit of football. So the bizarre thing was, Ross, um, me and Stuart basically get thrown together um, the first Saturday of the football season, 1995-96. We met each other in the BBC like two hours before we did the first edition of Off the Ball together. It's bonkers. Absolutely For the bonkers. first time. Absolutely, I We'd never met each other. I knew about him through Hamden Babylon and through seeing him on the telly and appearing on arty shows like a complete blank bag with his sunglasses on indoors and all that, right? Stuart, to be fair, he was very complimentary. He always said that when he arrived back to Channel 4 on the flight back up to Glasgow, 
he would get an evening times in a Monday and he'd always read my column and he really, really liked it. So we'd a wee bond kind of right away. We knew of each other. But the thing that I think really welded us together, and it's probably why we're still here 27 years later, is that I think first and foremost, Ross, uh, we both support what are deemed as we daddy teams, right? I'm obviously a Motherwell fan, Stuart's a St. Johnston fan. So we never kind of caught a snook, if that's the phrase, at like Celtic and Rangers and all the other big clubs, right? We could, we could kind of have a wee sneery look at them. The other thing that brought us together was that as much as we seem, we seem like poles apart, um, you know, we, uh, me for Motherwell, Stuart, Perth and Stuart being the intellectual and me maybe not being quite so intellectual, we had we had a very, very similar upbringing because um, I was brought up in a housing scheme in Motherwell where every penny was a prisoner and Stuart was brought up in a housing scheme in Perth where every penny was a prisoner. So that kind of maybe brought us together a wee bit as well. Between that and supporting the wee Diddy teams, and we were in there on the first week. We did that first show two hours after meeting. And the idea at the time, Ross, was today like kind of zoo radio and kind of like squad rotation. And mm -hmm. maybe Stuart was going to present it and then I was going to come in and then maybe somebody else was going to come in the following week, somebody else the other week, and then I might have come back the third week. But Stuart, God bless him. It's the biggest thing I'll ever say for him and I'll always be thankful after we did our first show together, uh, Stuart said to the producer, he said, you know what? He said, I think I think me and Tam had a wee bit of chemistry there. Why don't we keep it going next week? And we did. And then it was the next week, and the next week, and the next week, and the next week. And here we are, 27 years later. So it's been great. It's been absolutely brilliant. I love it. What is it that you think that people enjoy about it so much, the fact that it's went on for 27 years? I think, well, but to a certain extent, and maybe not to the same extent now because of the way the world is in the 21st century, but we're by and large allowed to say what we want to say as football fans. And then it tunes in, they'll know what I mean by that. But you can chuck in the odd wee, the odd wee X rated joke, you can chuck in the odd wee bit of uh, language that you perhaps wouldn't hear on Sports Sound. But, you know, we, we rein that in. But, if, if Celtic and Rangers have been up to any shenanigans that week, we're always able to go in there and absolutely flame them. And we're also able, if if it, if it requires to be said, to have a wee pop at the BBC, uh, you know what I mean? So we're, we're allowed to be quite irreverent and be on a, a long, long leash. And uh, as long as the stuff that we're saying has always been felt by the fans at large, I mean... I would never, Ross, um, finish a show at two o'clock on a Saturday and get to Fir Park. I'm very, very lucky in that respect. Particularly you know, the football's back, of course, and the fans are back in. I can leave the BBC in Glasgow at two o'clock on a Saturday and I can scoot out to Fir Park and bin my seat where my season ticket seat is, uh, sitting with my pals at about quarter to three, ten to three, and that's great. But I would never, ever, two things I would never do. I would never come back for doing off the ball for two hours, edge into my seat and say to my pals, oh, oh I've just come back from my work. 
because they would quite rightly boot my boss all over the place because <laughs> you know my pals they proper work. I'm 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 paid to get in there and have a laugh and a joke about the fatma with one of my pals, you know. Another thing that I wouldn't do, I would never then, because I'm a Motherwell fan and my pals are Motherwell fans, I would never then on air, we off the ball, I would never try to say anything um, about Motherwell that the Motherwell fans wouldn't agree with. I would like to, I'm always very careful that trying to keep in tune with the supporters because I could do a programme and then come back to Fur Park on a Saturday, sit my pals and they'd say, what was that you were saying in the radio? We, 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 we don't agree with that, you know? So you've always, if, if you like, Motherwell have always, always had the fairest throw of the dice for me in 27 years. So I need to be ultra careful about what I say so I don't get flamed by my pals, you know? But um, but yeah, the, the love of the Diddy Club and being able, because we're no Celtic or Rangers fans, I mean, I think... If I'd been a Celtic fan or a Rangers fan or Stuart had been a Celtic fan or a Rangers fan, I don't think the show uh, would be 27 years old. Simple as that. I think part of it as well is, I don't know if it's maybe Scottish culture, everybody kind of likes to have a laugh and everyone can slag each other's teams and that. Do you think that's sort of the show that you do is unique to Scotland as well, in a sense? Yeah, absolutely. You need to have a laugh about it. I mean, that's how it's still. Absolutely. And I've done two or three of them this week. You know, they, I still get questioned about who I really support. Man, for fuck's sake. I mean, <laughs> I, I get my first season ticket, Ross, when I was 10, 1979, right? That was my birthday present when I was 10. And I've renewed it every year. You know, I'm deep into 40-odd years of being a season ticket holder at Motherwell. They're the only team for me. But, of course... Welcome to the wonderful world of Scottish football. You're still, aye, but you're, aye, who's your big team? Aye, but you're really a Rangers fan. Aye, but you're really a Celtic fan. And we've got a wee bit of a trope on off the ball that uh, Stuart always likes to bring up where guys have been convinced that, A, I used to run a Celtic supporters bus from Glasgow University back in the day. Now, Stuart laughs at that because there's clearly no fucking way I was near a university, right? <laughs> and B, there was another guy that tried to stir it up as well by saying that I used to walk with the Orange Marching Band in Burnbank in Hamilton back in the day. Now, to be fair to that guy, he, he tried to do a wee bit of homework. He'd clearly heard me or uh, saw me writing about this in a column in the past about how my favourite uncle and auntie, Uncle Bobby and Auntie Agnes, were from Burnbank in Hamilton. So he tried to he tried to put a wee bit of fact into this, you know, by mentioning Burnbank so that folks say, oh, I've heard Tam talking about Burnbank. I bet that was true that he used to go down there and throw the stick in there and catch it in the back of his neck and all that, you know. Absolute bonkers. Motherwell fan through and through, but hey, you know, think with Chick Young, a St. Murren fan, has endured for his entire life. You know, I've, I've, it's what a Rafa Duck's back. I want to talk to you a wee bit about the, the show Offside because obviously, as you've pointed out, a few years before my time, but I was watching some of them. What age are you, Ross? 23. I mean, we finished that in 2007. What, what age were you in 2007? Quick maths. I think it would have been 10. 10. Or 9. Do you remember tuning in? Been allowed to stay up late on a Monday. No, nah, I wasn't a look, Tom. Oh, Devastating. 
That's me heartbroken. I was watching it and some of the stuff's just brilliant. Some of the stuff that's just brilliant in it. I mean, I was watching Aye, the well, video on YouTube. There's a lot of stuff available on YouTube. Aye. Uh, including a big hour and a half, very best of kind of thing. And then there's all sorts of other clips with interviews with oh, giants of Scottish football, uh, Jim McLean, Walter Smith, Ali McCoy, everybody. It was brilliant. I, I had the time in my life. We did that for nine years, Ross. 1998 to 2007, and I can't kid you on the house that I'm sitting in now. Offside probably paid for it, you know. It was it was great to to have your own show on the telly for that long. Uh, was brilliant, and ah, uh, oh, I've got so many happy memories. Um, with the people that I met every day for Tony Christie, John McCrinnick, the Proclaimers, Kenny Dalglish, Joe Jordan. I mean, I could go on and on and on. It was it was magnificent, and I, I really miss it. I mean, the audiences that came, I still get a lot of feedback for folk who never missed a Monday night. They would, they would, you know, they would sell their granny to get a ticket to come on a Monday night and sit in the studio audience. And there's quite a few of them still contact me, and I would love to bring it back. I would absolutely love to bring it back. And the only thing I would say, Ross, is you'll understand yourselves, a young, hip, trendy man. If you look back at some of the old clips, there was probably, there was probably some of the jokes, some of the language, some of the leeway we had that you wouldn't get away with it. You know, everyone's been really, really tightly reined in. Um, but that's fine. But, you know, you're either funny or you're not funny. And, and I still think we could do... Um, a, a right good show in front of a live studio audience put it out on a Monday night and I think it'd be great and is there a chance of that coming back then? well we need you and everybody else like you to start a petition it's done to you it's done to you yeah, I'll get that started, started up for you then and then we ask your dad say dad did you like that and he says I really really liked it I, uh, then you know he, he'd maybe sign his name on the petition how did the opportunity come up to get your own show? Again, it was a, I had a funny career path, Ross. I told you about, you know, starting writing stuff when I was at the school. Then that moved on to uh, the Evening Times column. Then that moved on to being off the ball. So it was like, almost like a natural progression. In 1998, they had a, a satellite station, if you like, called BBC Choice Scotland. Now, at that time, they had launched BBC Choice Scotland, BBC Choice England, BBC Choice Wales, BBC Choice Northern Ireland. Now, which later became, they all kind of merged and became uh, BBC uh, Four, which is still going. But when they were regionalised, um, the the Scotland, England, Wales, Northern Ireland, they were encouraged to develop new talent and put shows on their V channel. So even though the audience must have been tiny at the time, with another pal of mine and another guy who I give credit to, Ewan Angus, who was the commissioning editor at the BBC at the time, he got the success of Off the Ball and he asked me if I would like to do a, a telly show. And I said, absolutely, you know. So for the first two years of Off the Ball, uh, sorry, the first two years of Offside, we did it on BBC Choice and it was in a small... Studio Studio B at the old BBC at Queen Margaret Drive, which any older folk tune in to us will, will remember. Uh, there was no audience. It was me, two guests, and a camera. 
And we did, God almighty, we did a show every week for every Monday for two years. And it was great. And it was brilliant, brilliant training. It was, it was great. And then happily it worked. And even though it was only this wee silly satellite channel, it, a, a lot of folk picked up on it, which is why then 2001, they gave us a crack at BBC One on a Monday night, 10.35, a brilliant slot. And uh, we did that right through to 2007. So it was great. Very, very fond memories. We touched on a wee bit, but who would have been your favourite interview or guest that you had on offside? Well, I'll tell you in a strange sort of way, Emlyn Hughes. Now, even as a young man, you must have heard of Emlyn Hughes, have you? Ah, uh-huh, bye. Ah, yeah, maybe. Might just be saying that. A Liverpool and England legend, right? You ask your dad about on the night, Ross, right? Emlyn Hughes um, agreed to do the show when he basically knew he was dying, right? Emlyn Hughes had an inoperable brain tumour. And we had, we had him booked to come up to Glasgow and do the show. And he still came up, right? And when he was sitting in the green room before the show, I went in, I'd always go into the green room to have a wee word with the guests about, and try to give him a wee heads up about what we'd be talking about. And if you could point him in a direction, any story, and say, by the way, we're going to mention your career at such and such. And we're going to mention the, the, the fight you had with that guy. And just so you could spark a wee story right. um, in that they come in today the show. So I'm running to see Emlyn Hughes, who I had grown up with. Again, ask your dad when he was a team captain on a question of sport and all that, and a great laugh, brilliant footballer. And I went in to see Emlyn Hughes in his dressing room, and it was strange. He was sitting with his glasses, if I can just do that, we reading glasses at the end of his nose, and he was looking through some notes that he'd clearly made about maybe stories that he wanted to tell, and great wee anecdotes and jokes or whatever, you know. And I went in and I shook his hand and says, Emlyn, hiya, I'm, I'm Tam Cowan. Thank you so much uh, for coming up today, the show. And uh, he says, oh, it's a pleasure, Tam, it's a pleasure. And uh, he says, I didn't want to let you down. This is a guy who, since we had booked him, had been told that basically he was dying, right? It was, it was, it was quite incredible. And I thought, right, I'll leave you looking through your notes, um, Emlyn, we'll see you on the show when we start the recording. Thanks very much again. And I'll tell you what, Ross, when he came out, when I introduced him out live in front of the audience, so ladies and gentlemen, please welcome now the Liverpool England legend, question of sport captain, Emlyn Hughes. He came out and he, he turned into the Emlyn Hughes of old, the one that you remember on a question of sport. He was all laughing, he was all giggling and he came out and he was absolutely magnificent and the great story that he told me that I'll never, ever forget, he said, when I asked him about the great Scotland-England games of the past that he had played in, of course, he said, Tam, he says, the one I'll never forget, it was England against Scotland at Wembley in the mid-70s, and we were on our way to the stadium in the England team bus, and he says, there was a member of the Tartan Army with the CU Jimmy Wig, the Scotland top, the kilt, the caterpillar boots, etc., etc. As we were driving to Wembley, this guy stuck the head on the England team bus, right? And he said, the incredible thing was, we were doing fucking 70 miles an hour at the time. <laughs> <laughs> it was brilliant. 
And he was great. And you know what? When I say, I always say to folk, the late, great Emlyn Hughes, late, sadly, he's no longer with us. Great, not only because what he did in my programme that night, but that night, I think he was living down in Sheffield. So normally, if, if you brought a guest up for England or whatever, you would put them up overnight in Glasgow and then they could go home the next day, right? You could have a wee drink with them at night. No, that was, that's a whole other chapter. You could do a whole podcast with me about that, Ross, about who I've had a drink with in Byers Road after being offside. I mean, we did 120-odd shows. It's magnificent stories, right? But that night, Emlyn had to get back down to Sheffield. I think it was Sheffield where he lived. So we, we got him a, a, a taxi booked to take him straight down the road uh, to Sheffield. And the brilliant story that we heard back for the taxi driver, which I think sums up Emlyn Hughes, which is why I, even as a Scotland fan, will always salute the guy. Uh, the word get back to is that when the taxi driver stopped at his house at somewhere like half past three in the morning, um, Emlyn had already phoned his wife and she had made up the spare room and they both insisted that the taxi driver, rather than driving all that way back home, that he come in and had a wee night's cap. They made a bit of breakfast for him in the morning and he drove up the road the next day. Absolutely brilliant. That's and that's brilliant. why when I'm up, when I'm ever asked about, you know, who was a memorable guest in offside, you know, for human reasons, I can right. never forget. And on the opposite side, I think. It's probably, you probably agree, it's kind of the show that you needed the guests to engage. Was there anybody that was, you don't need to name them, but was there any stories? Aye, no, I'll name them. And I've got no harm against them. Uh, remember John McGinley, the former Scotland striker, he was at Bolton. Uh -huh. He was a great goal scorer, right? We get John McGinley on when he was top of the tree, right? He was, uh, he was banging them in for Bolton. He was scoring for Scotland. And we got him on offside and... It was weird. It was really, really strange. We got him on the show when I when the wee cup of tea with him in the green room before the show, before we started the recording. He was battering out all these stories one after another, and they were all absolutely brilliant. Can you hear that? Why? Hey, Doug. That's all right. <laughs> that must mean that my wife and my Wayne are uh, ready to come back home. Uh, they are indeed right. So that's fine. That's just a bit of. Human interest for him that's tuned in likes the dunks, right? But John McGinley, I, I, I spoke to him in the green room before the show, and every single story that he told me, I thought, oh, wow. If he only tells one of those on the show the night we've won a watch, this will bring the house down. They were great, great stories, right? Unfortunately, however, um, John, John McGinley, when we introduced him out in front of the live audience, now bear in mind, Ross, our live audience, it was because of health and safety and all that, we, we were allowed in a maximum of, I think, 320 people into Studio A at the old BBC. So John McGinley must have appeared in front of crowds at Hamden, at Wembley, 60,000, 80,000, whatever it might have been. The minute I introduced him out onto the show, he just froze. He absolutely froze. And the minute I asked him any question, rather than telling us a great story, he just said, yeah, no, yeah, no. It was nightmare stuff. And then when we were in the green room after the show, 
and had a wee bottle of beer and whatever, a wee glass of wine. Most annoying thing ever. He then rattled off all the stories again. Great, great stories. Any one of which he could have based a book on, but he didn't tell one of them on the show. So it was quite, shall we say, quite a quite a job for the editor of the show that night, you know, to trim it uh, nicely. Thankfully, I don't, I, I can't even remember who else was on me, but thankfully the other guests had kind of given us plenty of material, you know, but that, that's the ultimate nightmare. If you're doing a show like that and somebody just clams up. I think that was just because of the live audience. Well, again, as I say, I think it was meant to do with the lights, the cameras, etc. because as I say, you know, run out in front of live audiences, if you like, live crowds, live attendances at Hamden and, and Wembley and all the rest of it, and go on with his job, but he just froze on the night, it was, you know, kind of rabbit in the headline stuff. Speaking of lights, it's getting a bit dark in here, I better turn mine on. I'm there, you need to put it's money in the meter. Like, where are, you, where are you tonight, Ross? Just in my house. But it was getting yeah. a bit dark. Livingston. Oh, dear. Livingston fan as well, so I could join you and uh, you and Stuart with the Diddy Clubs in your words. Yes, but neither me nor Stuart need to sit next to a fucking drummer. Mm, I sat at the other end of the stand, to be fair. <laughs> I sat the opposite stand as well for the Motherwell drum. The Motherwell boys are out in the East stand. I'm out in the Phil O'Donnell in the main stand, so I'm all right as well. I thought you would have been involved in the Well boys. Well, I've, I've only been involved, shall we say... Um, uh, financially, uh, whenever they would uh, big games coming up and they wanted to make some new banners and all that, uh, do you know Derek Watson? It's central to the Motherwell boys. No, I don't know. No, you never met Derek, right? Derek's a good wee guy, and he's the guy that's always got the, the loud tailor and all that when he's when he's urging them to sing and all that. So in the past, I I've, I've I've chucked him a few quid when it's been in the eve of a big game and they want to kind of invest a bit of money in good banners and all. I, 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 think the, I think the well boys are great. I think all the guys, I mean, they all get this criticism, be it the Union Bears or the, um, the what the ultra squad at Celtic again, what do you call them? The Green Brigade. The Green Brigade, right. We all know they get that flack for time to time and they get fined and for time to time. Huh? But they're, 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 they're normally the only guys that add a bit of atmosphere. The, the, the game and, that, and that's certainly true in the well boys so mere power to their elbow definitely I'd like to speak to you a wee bit about when offside goes to the theatre as well how did that come about what? when offside went to the theatre oh no, that was great that how was did that come about um, we did three nights four nights at the King's Theatre in Glasgow and the show had been thankfully the show had really taken off we were getting brilliant audiences and uh, they said to me, how about doing a wee live version on stage? And right away, I must be honest, Ross, the thing that appealed to me about that was that because it was live on stage and it wasn't in a telly, you could really kind of stretch it out a wee bit and you could be a wee bit naughtier, shall we say. So we did that for four nights. We had me up there, I think I did the first half of the show and then in the second half of the show, we brought out Johnny Watson who was an integral part of Offside, doing his impressions and stuff. But we brought him out in the second half, done up as his finest ever creation, Frank McAvaney. And honestly, when he came out in front of a live audience, done up as Maca, it was absolutely astounding. 
And then we, we start having down the couch with a wee bit of laugh with him, a wee interview that we'd conjured up. Uh, and then we had another couple of guests and that boys looked chuck young and everything. And it was great. It was absolutely great fun. The theatre was packed. Uh, the punters all really, really seemed to enjoy it. Whenever we went uh, after the show for a wee pint across the road for the King's Theatre at the Griffin Bar, one of Glasgow's finest bars, uh, I, the punters that came up to me were dark. They were brilliant. They were just saying how much they'd enjoyed it and all that, you know. And that's why, to this day, I still love doing live gigs. I was I was doing a thing on Sunday there in uh, Gorgie Suite at uh, Tyne Castle. And it was for uh, my big pal, Scott Wilson, um, who's got an involvement with NHS Scotland. So we did a wee fundraising afternoon uh, for the NHS. And uh, it was packed to hundreds of folk in the hall. And it was great being able to go up and do, if you like, my stand-up act and got there for, I don't know how long I was on. I was enjoying myself, about two hours or something. And, uh, and it was great. I had a ball. And it was great just to... As much as I loved doing the radio and as much as I loved doing the telly and as much as I love writing newspaper columns, there's something about it that if you keep it within reason, you know, we know we know how the world is now and, you know, there, there, there's nothing to be gained for being, you know, racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever it might be. If you can go up there and keep it clean and but still have a right good laugh for the audience and entertain them, there's, there's nothing I like better than that. It gives you such a buzz. So what we saying, offside return to King's Theatre one night only then next year? Well, we could maybe get by one night and then shut down. No, no, it's <laughs> anything else. You would, you would carefully craft it so that, I mean, don't get me wrong, I mean, you could watch, in, in fact, I would challenge you and the viewers who are tuned into this to, to go to YouTube and watch uh, the King's Theatre show that we did because it's all up there. And, you know, there may have been a couple of references or words that you couldn't have used now, but there was nothing, you know, there was nothing meant to deliberately cause offence or anything like that. But, yeah, there might have been something that, you know, would have been deemed inappropriate now. But, but, but go and check it out, you know. We all learn as days go on. I mean, we, as I say again, 27 years on the radio, I'm sure there was words, phrases, jokes, et cetera, et cetera, that we could have done in the infancy of off the ball that we, that, that, you know, that you couldn't do now. And you would know that you couldn't do that. It'd be, you'd be crazy to even think about it. I think the world's just changed in general. Even when you watch TV shows for 10 years ago and all that, you think back and you're like, that's mental that they were getting away Absolutely. with. Absolutely. Um, I've got to speak to you about this because it's probably my dream job, a restaurant reviewer. How oh. does that come about? Uh, that was the best job I've ever had in my life. Uh, 21 years I managed out of that, doing the restaurant reviews for the newspapers. And what basically happened, when I left Evening Times, this ties up a lot of the loose ends here for you, Ross. When I left Evening Times in 1998, get my, my big money move, if you like, to the Daily Record, when newspapers were still full of money and all the rest of it. And, you know, 1998 was effectively the year when the internet started, so the, the newspapers were still chucking money all over the place. And... When I, when I signed up with the, the Daily Record to write newspaper columns and uh, about news and about football, my then editor, my new editor, said that he would like me to do something for the magazine, the Saturday magazine, the record, which was just being launched the week that I was joining the record. 
and the magazine is still in the paper on a Saturday. So I said to him, right, I'll, I'll, I'll do it if it's something that interests me. And he said, what are your interests? And I said, and I wasn't a kid in 1998, I was a single man, had a brilliant, brilliant social life. I was out drinking, out eating, daddy, 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 da. And I said, uh, I said, I love eating out. I said, have you eaten today with that? And he said, yes. He said, I want a restaurant reviewer, but I don't want the restaurant reviewer to be all uppity and talking about, you know, where the Jerusalem artichokes were sourced and all that shit. He says, I just want somebody to date as a punter. And he said, you're the punter today. So I started doing the restaurant reviews in the Daily Record 1998. Um, I did it right through to 20, when would that have been, 2014, 16 years. And then when I moved to the Scottish Sun, I did it for another five years there until I left the Scottish Sun in 2019. So 21 years of going out once a week, effectively, filling my face and sending in my expenses to the paper. It was the best job ever. What's the best story you've got after that, after that negative review, shall we say? After a negative review? After a negative review. You've got to oh, have been in some I did one in Glasgow one night, not far from the King's Theatre that we were just talking about, not far from the Griffin Bar that we were just talking about. And it was awful. It was absolutely awful. And I slated it. And it went in the paper, in the magazine, in the Saturday paper, and uh, the Saturday, obviously. And Monday morning, a taxi pulled up outside the Daily Record headquarters in the Broomilaw in Glasgow. And a guy in full chef whites, the white tunic, the check trousers that they all wear, and a pair of Crocs, total cliche. He got out the taxi, and he was seen getting out the taxi, reaching in to his inside pocket and taking one last swig from a half bottle of vodka. No. Maybe a wee bit of Dutch courage. And he came into the reception area at the BBC, at the Daily Record, and demanded to speak to Tam Cowan, who had slated him in the paper that Saturday night. Now, I have never... And I, I quite enjoy it. In all the years, 30 years now that I've been involved in newspapers, I've never once worked in an office. I've always worked for home. You send your stuff in. So they, they kind of quite politely said to me, you know, Tam doesn't actually work here. He's, he works for home. No, no, no. Where is he? Where is he? And he wouldn't take no for an answer. And then when he finally kind of acknowledged that I might not work in the office. He was wanting my home address. He was wanting my home phone number. He was like, you know, everything, you know. And it ended up, he lost the, he lost the place a wee bit and he started getting really, really angry. And uh, alas, they phoned security and uh, they phoned the police eventually and they got him huckled away. But it was extraordinary. And his, his restaurant had been appalling. Trust me, it had been appalling. He was a Russian guy working in it with his Russian wife, and it was meant to be an Italian restaurant. And let's just say they didn't they didn't have the nuances of an Italian restaurant to make it work. It was terrible, absolutely terrible. And lo and behold, to back me up, Ross, once I'd slated them in the paper, it was like ding-dong, the witch is dead, and the wizard of Oz, when the, the witch finally dies when she gets the bucket of water poured over her, and all her henchmen suddenly celebrate 
and say that she was terrible and she was rotten and, you know, um, it was a wee bit like that. When I put the review in the paper, I get loads of letters in for people who said, Tam, thank God you've exposed that place. We went and it was rotten. Oh, I, we went and it was rotten. Oh, we went as well, overpriced. Food was terrible. Daddy, 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 da. So I feel that I had done the public a service, uh, albeit that I was basically getting a death threat. Thank you. On the flip side, can you remember the best review that you've given or one of the best ones? Well, you know what, Ross? No, because in my opinion, it's very, very general. The best review to me, see if I go to a place... And, I, you know, this would be particularly over-egged in the era of uh, post-COVID, post-lockdown. In the 21 years that I was doing it in the newspapers, and I still do my, I've got my Scoff the Ball podcast that I do for the BBC, um, which I really, really enjoy. And in Instagram, I've, I've bought into Instagram and I still effectively review restaurants on that. Um, in terms of the best place, I just like places where you go and you have a nice meal, it's not too expensive, you've really enjoyed it, and let's just say the cherry on top, if it's a wee nice family-run place, and I would always, particularly in the current climate, try to give places like that a really, really good mention, you know, and right. uh, that would keep me happy, you know, but when I get into places, I'm not looking for any ears or graces, I'm certainly not looking for any Michelin star food, whether I go out and have a curry, I have a Chinese, I have an Italian, I have a steak and chips, I have fish and chips, as long as it's okay and I'm able to be quite positive about it, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted and I'll always, always, always uh, flag up places like that because it's a, it's a harsh world in which we live and God, God Almighty, the folk that were in the pub game and the restaurant game, they're the part, we, we all sorts of other folk, theatre, entertainment, it's been a hard, hard, hard couple of years. And if I can do anything uh, to help my well. Aye, definitely. Uh, moving on to the football again, I want to speak to you about the national team. So what did you make initially of the, the Euros performance? Disappointing. Um, considering we two games at home and our only performance, if you like, was at Wembley which might have been a case of raising a game against the big team. And I've seen that at club level where, you know, teams are in a bad, bad run and they play Celtic or Rangers and they manage to, you know, uh, improve a wee bit. I, I was kind of disappointed. Um, so, yeah, that, 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 but again, you, you move on for that and you think, well, look where we are now on the, the verge of a playoff place, albeit, when we get into this wee kind of round-robin group or however they work it, but, but, you know, we're not going to play any mugs. But it would appear to me, and that's why I'll remain positive, that we're improving as the days, as the weeks go on. But, yeah, overall, overall, I must say, I thought the Euros, bit of a damn squib. And how are you rating our chances of qualification for the World Cup? Well, again, I don't... I've, I've not sat down with the, you know, with the experts, if you like. I keep asking folk that Richard Gordon and Sportsound, my pal, he's as near an expert I'll get. And I ask guys like that, right, who are we likely to get? But I think that'll become more apparent um, over the next few weeks and after we've played Moldova and uh, after we've played, of course, uh, Denmark at home. But um, so, I, I, you know, it's, 
it's going to be decent teams that we're playing against, but uh, whatever the format, um, I'm just hopeful that we can squeeze through. It'd be great. Um, it'd be great to get to Qatar, although the only negative thing is that the SPFL and the SFA haven't taken into account the we have that winter shutdown, uh-huh. which I think ends on December the 18th next year. And the World Cup final is in December the 19th. And you think they're clearly pessimistic. They don't think that we're going to get to the World Cup final. I mean, that's <laughs> awful. What a, what a terrible, terrible approach to take to the tournament. But no, I'd be delighted. I mean, can you imagine what I'd be like, Ross? If we, you know, we got into the Euros, we hadn't been near a tournament since 1998. We got into the Euros, and then if we can get into the World Cup, you know, notwithstanding where it's been played and all the issues with that about human rights and daddy, daddy, da and the weather and 40 degree heat and all the rest of it and the fact it's going to be in November, December. It would be amazing if we could follow up the Euros where we appearance at the at the World Cup. And domestically, what do you think the biggest surprise this season so far has been? Oh, Aberdeen, I must say. Um I mean, me and Stuart on off the ball, we both always had a soft spot for Aberdeen purely because as non-old firm fans, if you're looking for a club that's maybe got a chance at upsetting the apple cap, you know, and putting the cat amongst the pigeons and all the other cliches and and, and, and maybe pipping Aberdeen or Celtic to a league title, it's kind of Aberdeen you're looking at in terms of being the big city club in terms of the oil industry, whatever else it might be, Aberdeen still been a fairly rich city. So we have always kind of quietly cheered for Aberdeen because we know that Model wants to Johnson and they're going to win the league, you know. So if we're looking for a contender just to freshen up, considering that nobody out with Rangers and Celtic have won the league for, you're going near on 40 years now. It's ridiculous, you know. So we have always fondly looked at Aberdeen, but Wow, that, that's the big surprise. To see how they, they're, they're ninth. They've no won as we speak. They've no won a game in 10. You've had their chairman, their owner, Dave Cormack, who I've had many a deal in me. Uh, as he came out as we speak the other night on Monday night on Sportsound and trying to defend uh, Stephen Glass. It's just a sad, sad state of affairs. And they've got Awful fixtures come up, but to me, Ross, as much as Hearts and Hibs have made, particularly Hearts, of course, made a great start to the season. Hibs had a wee bit of wobble, obviously, um, at the weekend, getting beaten by uh, Dundee United 3-0. But as much as you think Hearts and Hibs could maybe make inroads, I've always just thought that Aberdeen, and particularly in the history, and they've, you know, right. coupling us in the Super Cup and all the rest of it, you know, you're always kind of looking at them if they get everything in place to try and put a wee bit of a den uh, in Celtic and Rangers. But certainly it's things standing out. I mean, you know, it sounds ridiculous to say it, but they're, they're more likely relegation candidates. Now. You know, it's incredible. I think it'll turn in the round, so I think the squad's there. The next time we're in the Well, they've got the squad there. You know, starting with, I thought, and I loved him as a player, and I thought he was absolutely brilliant at Celtic. He was a warrior, but Scott Brown, but Scott Brown, Aberdeen, I thought, wow, what a brilliant, brilliant bit of business. But he's not been able to 
almost show what he's capable of because the whole team hasn't been performing. And when I saw them at Motherwell uh, three or four weeks ago, when we beat Aberdeen, um, they were hopeless. The last third of the pitch, they had nothing to offer whatsoever. And then when the final whistle went, oh, it was awful. You had because the away team still gets changed in the south stand, the two-tier south stand at Motherwell. The Aberdeen players had to go up the steps next day where the Aberdeen fans, the ones that were playing and protest were still gathered. And, oh, it was horrible. It was a walk of shame. Right. It was awful. And, uh, you know, ordinarily they'd have full-time whistle with the gone and if they lost, straight down the tunnel at the far part and the halfway line. But there was no hiding place that day. And, oh, and I thought, I actually, I thought, Ross, that, you know what, we need to sort that so that the away teams can get in the normal dressing rooms because I, I kind of thought that that might play against Motherwell. There might be managers who come to Fur Park for a game and say, you know what, guys, if we don't win the day or if we get a bad result, you've got to walk back up these steps and face the fans. So let's get the finger out, you know. And I yeah. thought, I can actually play against Motherwell. So, but Aberdeen, oh, they're still, I, I still think no matter how well Hearts are doing this year, Ross and Hibs are slowly but surely getting their act together. I still think in the grand scheme of things, we, the city, the club, the history, the potential sponsorship, that we have to be looking at Aberdeen uh, to try and get in about Celtic and Rangers, but there's no sign there just now. And how's Hibble on your own team, on the Motherwell there? How are you rating them so far this season? Well, again, it's been weird. I mean, it seems like only a few weeks ago we get beat with Dundee in the League Cup and Graham Alexander, I'm talking about walk of shame for part, but as Graham Alexander was walking down to that tunnel at Dens Park, next to the away stand where all the Motherwell fans were, he was getting absolutely pilloried. He was getting booed. He was getting every sort of shout under the sun. And then you sprawl on a few weeks and we get a great year run in the league. And we're now sitting, uh, I think we might be, well, we might be actually six now. We might be dropped down um, after the defeat to um, Celtic. But, aye, we've done okay. We've done okay. And again, remember, I, I always be a realist. Um, we've got, which is brilliant now, so maybe I think our highest ever uh, in history. We've got something like 5,000 season ticket holders now, you know, which is... Brilliant, you know. So I'm hoping we can keep a wee bit of form up and, and keep these guys coming back and bring the floating supporters, I always like to call them back. Maybe guys that haven't been to a Muddle game for a while, they look at the league table and they make a good game at third part and think, you know what, I'm going to go up to that game, you know. So I am I'm quietly confident. Um, Graham Alexander is the first Muddle manager in my time that I've no met. Um, we've got the the Hall of Fame dinner coming up. We did it in twenty nineteen, pre COVID. Um, the nom the nominations were announced for twenty twenty when we were in lockdown, and these guys will be inducted uh, next month in November when we announce the twenty twenty one winners. And part of the highlight of that night for me will be meeting uh, Graham Alexander and see what makes him tick. But yeah, I think he's done a great job and. And, and what I really think about that, Ross, is he's spent, obviously, huge chunks of his uh, professional life in the, if you like, the lower reaches of English football. Uh -huh. And historically, in recent years, 
that's where Motherwell have brought a lot of players from, be it Louis Moult or Ryan Bowman or whatever it might have been. So I'm hoping he can kind of sprinkle the magic dust as well. That's a good point. I never thought about that, to be fair. Because that is where uh, that's where Motherwell do a lot of their business. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Um, if it's all right with you, we'll finish on the quickfire questions, Tom. It's all right if we finish. Absolutely. It's great if we finish. That's harsh. Right, quickfire. Go for it. So, put you on the spot here. Your league winner and relegate, the team that will get relegated this season. My league winner, based on what I've seen so far, would be Rangers. And I think this is Ross County's year for the drop. The favourite game you've ever been to? Uh, Motherwell 6, Hibs 6. Your favourite away ground? Sadly, no longer there, Brockville. The quintessential home to Falkirk Football Club. Back to the, the food review days, the best scran in Scottish football. A Stevens Brady at Dunfermline Athletic Football Club. The genius, eh? skateboard. Brilliant, eh? And lastly, you're hosting a dinner night. Four people and why? Oh, dead or alive? Yes. I would have because I'd like, I never met him and I keep talking about him. He was the greatest player I've ever seen in my old jersey. So, David Cooper, we'll have a guy of the, the privilege of meeting three times in my life, but I'd love to just sit down and have a chat with him with Billy Connolly. Uh, the next one, we would have one of my all time favourite um, musical stars, and I've had the honour and the privilege interviewing him at his stately home in Leicester. But I would have Engelbert Humperdinck, and he could maybe sing a wee song after the meal. And the final one that I would have, because you did say uh, Dead or Alive, my favourite film star of all time, who never stopped to put a smile on my face. And he was the star of my greatest film ever, Planes, Trains and Automobiles, the late, great John Candy. Not a bad line-up, that, eh? Unless it's a buffet and John Candy's at the front of the queue. <laughs> That's brilliant, Cam. Thanks a lot for coming on. You're quite welcome, Ross. All the best to you. Brilliant, thank you.